Do you need magical powers to see into the future? Well, it can't hurt. But maybe all you need is the best imagination, the best stories, the best storytelling ability. This was a great source of power among groups of our ancient ancestors, but this power is something that we try to leverage in our society today in a variety of different ways. I mean, here I am as an admissions counselor trying to tell kids about their future a bit. Well, you don't need magic. Maybe all you need is anthropology. Let's find out from self-described full-time anthropologist and part-time futurist at Intel, Genevieve Bell. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush. I'm Gavin Sweeney, an admissions counselor who talks to mystical oracles who work in office parks in Portland, Oregon, about things that relate to the world of college and college admissions. Okay, that's that's really only today. Genevieve Bell is the first oracle I have ever knowingly talked to. Intel is a household name in my home state of Oregon, where it uh, employs tens of thousands of people, including uh, two of my uncles for decades. Both of them Taught me as a kid that Intel stands for Integrated Electronics. It's the company that puts silicon in Silicon Valley by being the first place to mass produce semiconductors on silicon wafers to create integrated circuits or microchips. I think I got that right. You may have heard of Moore's Law. This is the computer science truism that the processing power of computers will double every two years. Well, Gordon Moore was Intel's founder and longtime CEO, and so... Intel was, in large part, the engine that thrust modern computing, particularly personal computing, into our everyday lives. So how does Genevieve fit into this? Well, it's sort of the main question that I had for her since, as an admissions counselor, I know the demand to study computer science has got to be at an all-time high, but I almost never hear kids saying that they want to study anthropology, and here she is at the intersection of both, so that's fascinating. What do they have to do with each other? In this era of hyper uh, return on investment awareness, how can multidisciplinary study, that being the uh, combining of several academic disciplines into your program of study, help that mission? Genevieve was raised by her engineer father and renowned anthropologist mother, whose name is uh, Diane Bell, in central Australia. She then went to Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania, and then she was a professor at Stanford. And then she met a man in a bar in Palo Alto and the rest as they say, is history. Uh, that man, of course, recruited her to work for Intel. This talk here is sort of the latest salvo in my effort to encourage students to consider the way you study in college can be enhanced in unbelievable ways by adding other disciplines into the mix. Multi and interdisciplinarity is the way to go. It makes you that much more useful a person in the world, I think. Uh, and as I think you'll hear from, from her, from Genevieve, it might just help you tell the future. I was connected to her by my dad, Mike, a retired high school anthropology teacher who had her come to speak to his classes in Portland. And he was connected to her by his brothers, my uncles, Tim and Kelly, longtime Intel employees. Love you guys. I spoke to Genevieve about a mind-bending swath of topics by telephone from her home in Portland, Oregon. Hello. Hello. Hi, hey, Genevieve. it's Genevieve Bell. Full of enthusiasm. Cool. All of it coffee and sugar-induced. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, that was going to be my question, if you've been sufficiently caffeinated, because I know it's, you know, the morning where you are. Never, never sufficiently caffeinated is the answer, <laughs> but you don't want me, you, other human beings don't want me sufficiently caffeinated, <laughs> because the amount of caffeine I want 
makes me become like one of the, the sort of the chipmunks off television where I just talk <laughs> faster and faster and faster and kind of only really to myself. All right. So we'll hope that you've uh, engaged in some self-regulation this morning. I have indeed. Right, the joys good. of being an adult. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Where are you right now? Uh, I am sitting on my living room floor, surrounded by random detritus and two of the biggest piles of books you've ever seen about divination and Greek goddesses. That is uh, not probably what most people are doing right now. And that's, or at least that's probably not what they're surrounded by. <laughs> I think, you know, there's probably about two other people on the planet and they're both classic scholars <laughs> who have all of those books. And I'm fairly certain that, as per usual, the Amazon algorithm is like, what are you doing? <laughs> so, do you, I mean, I would imagine that, that you'd probably take it upon yourself as kind of a personal mission to disrupt the Amazon algorithm as much as you possibly can. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I think I'm a single pest. And I suppose, and I'm just held as an exclusion. Do not include that woman's data. <laughs> oh, that's terrific. Thanks a lot for doing this. I appreciate that. And I wanted to just start off and say that my dad says hi. Uh, and he says hi from uh, from Turkey or Greece. I can't remember where they are right now, but they're they're on a month-long excursion to see the, uh, the wonders of the extremely ancient world. Yeah, I think he was starting in Turkey. I remember from the last email I yeah. had from him, that was where he was going, about which I'm very jealous. I loved Istanbul. I got to go there for the first time three years ago and had one of those moments I have in very few cities around the world where I just want to email my boss and say, sell my stuff, send me a check. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I, listen, I always think it's a good question. What do I do? Um, I mean, there's a couple of ways to answer that question. I would one imagine. To say, I have been lucky enough to have one of the best jobs on the planet for a really long time. Um, and partly I've been lucky to have it because... It's been a job that's been a lot of different things, right? I mean, I do frequently now describe myself as a full-time anthropologist. That is what my academic and scholarly background is in, and it's certainly the way I sort of look at the world. But I don't just do anthropology anymore. I'm also responsible for thinking about what does the future look like. So I'm sort of a part-time futurist in that sense, um, which is in no small part why my living room floor is covered with books about augury, auspices, and oracles. Because I was interested in the past of futurism, if that makes sense. In the what? But most of my job was the past of futurism. The past of futurism, right. So how were people in the past thinking about the future? Exactly. And, you know, when does the discipline that we would think of as kind of, you know, the futurism that we now recognize was preceded by many previous attempts. I mean, you know, this is not, we are not the only generation who has wanted to know what the future would be like. Most, you know, moments in human history, we have been preoccupied with some way of understanding what the future would be like because it mattered. It was about how you shepherded your resources, how you made alliances and marriages, how you thought about resources and safety. 
and anyone who had a better mechanism for making sense of the future. Maybe it was just as simple as the farmer's almanac and when was it going to rain. Maybe it was more complicated about uh, political relationships between warring villages or nation states. But anyone who had a capacity to be more right than wrong about those things or more um, seductive in their stories about the future were people that were venerated and valued. Um, you know, whether it's the kind of classic oracles out of, you know, Greek history who were the only people allowed to interrogate the gods versus those who were interpreting, you know, more classic augury and auspices, people interpreting the movement of birds and other animals and entrails and the weather. Uh -huh. The amount of things you can interpret is kind of staggering. There's a great page on Wikipedia of all the ways that you can interpret the world. Is that, you know, we've always, as human beings, we're obsessed with signs and symbols and with some notion that if we could know the future, we could control our destinies or we could be better prepared for whatever was coming. And, you know, today's futurists, while, you know, many of them are deeply rooted in the scientific tradition, and maybe we have a better capacity to know some things about the future. Sometimes our weather forecasting is more accurate than it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, you know, we can predict the movements of some financial markets better than we could. But we suffer from all the same problems everyone's ever suffered from, which is that some stories about the future are just too difficult to accept. Uh -huh. So, you know, whether it's one that says we're in an economic bubble, no, we're not because I'm making money. Or, hmm, you know, this climate change thing may not be a good idea. No, I'm sure it's not man-made. Um, you know, right. stories about the future are also uh, contested ground, right? They're places where we play out our current preoccupations and our current blinkered, blinded, blinkered and blind spots. So, you know, when I get to sort of think about what it means to tell stories about the future, I'm acutely aware of the history of that art <laughs> and that science, which is why all these books I've been reading. Yeah, so you'll be bringing entrails into the boardroom then. <laughs> uh, I think there's a bad pun in there about that's just a lot of tripe. <laughs> Ooh. But I'm just going to leave it, leave it well alone. I thought that was a good um, pun. Yeah, no, thanks. I can't claim it as one of my own. Okay, no, I think okay. it comes straight out of Asterix and Obelix. Um, <laughs> and the, the, the cartoon books of my childhood. No, but I think, you know, so um, I can imagine that any one of your listeners would now be going, what the hell does this woman do exactly? I know, I know, so I love it. So my, my job for the last 18 years at Intel has been, um, I mean, remarkably steadfast on one level, right? It's been how do you bring the stories from outside the building into the building and make them count? So how do you ensure that as a company we are paying attention to uh, our current markets and the markets that we might have, to the people that use our technology and the people that don't? How do we ensure that we're paying attention to how the world is changing? And how do we find ways to bring those insights in a meaningful form inside the company and do something with them? So for a long time I was a researcher and I studied human behavior and human beings and the way human beings did and didn't use technology and why. And, you know, I was responsible for driving those insights into product and innovation development and, you know, next generation technology production. More recently, my job has been to also think about not just the people part of the equation, but also what does government regulation look like? What are kind of cultural patterns, not just individual patterns? What is the kind of interaction between changing social ideas and mores? human culture, government regulation, technology development? And how do we think about that constellation of things and its impact on the future of computing? And, you know, how do we 
start to have conversations inside the building that ensure that we are continuing to drive computing forward in all the best and right ways. Now, this is a part of my job has been what it's always been, right? It's been about being an anthropologist, yeah. which means spending time with people and trying to work out how to tell their stories to others and to give them meaning and shape. Part of it, I think, you know, I've never really stopped being a professor. I'm sure much to the mm-hmm. irritation of my colleagues. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, you know, like, I didn't register for this class. Things, so wait, wait a second. <laughs> well, you know, much to my irritation, too, because I don't get to grade me one at the end. I'm oh, like, man. No. Yeah. You have not participated in this discussion well. Goes both ways, I guess, yeah. Um, so, you know, part of it's also about, you know, how do you create a learning environment, you know, where you're opening up, you know, what I would have called as an academic or discursive arena and encouraging people to populate it and try and have hard conversations that aren't in the scope of someone's day job. Right. So, you know, part of it is kind of, you know, classic academic, I think, in both ways, right? The, the ways of my discipline, but also the ways of, of the broader field, right? What are some great... Some, but some, that also means... Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, so I was going to say, you know, I think one of the hard things about making the transition from being an academic to being in industry, for me, one of the hardest pieces about it, and in fact, I, I still think one of the best, it's one of the pieces I love, have loved most about the job, is that when I was still at university and when I was teaching... I was in a department of other people who studied all the same stuff I'd studied. And we could have conversations that were incredibly abstract because there was an inordinate amount of shared literature and canonical thinking and history. But it also meant that we talked in a kind of shorthand that I think sometimes meant we did ourselves a disservice mm-hmm. in terms of exploring ideas further. And one of the things that was fascinating for me and has continued to be really intellectually challenging in all the best ways about being in industry is that I very rarely talk to other anthropologists. <laughs> I talk to lots of other people. And I had to work out how to take the things I knew and make them intelligible. So it wasn't a matter. In this case, I was very unlike uh, Pyth- Pythia, the Oracle of Delphi, right, who sat on the edge of a mountain and waited for people to come to her so she could interpret, you know, the voices of the gods. I instead, you know, you can't sit on a mountain and wait, right? You have to go and actually engage in the conversations of the company. Now, you've been uh, an anthropologist at Intel for a long time now, and you were, I mean, I, I understand that that was not the, uh, that was not your goal, uh, that it, it really was mm. sort of a uh, uh, happenstantial, uh, if that's a word, uh, event uh, for you, that, that you found yourself at Intel. And then after that, I mean, did you, did you see other uh, companies that were thinking about the future and the way that Intel's thinking about the future choose to emulate uh, the model by bringing anthropologists aboard? Oh, absolutely. So when I joined Intel back in 98, and you're right to allude to it not having been my career path, I was a professor at Stanford. And truthfully, I ended up at Intel the way only an Australian can do anything. I met a man in a bar in Palo Alto. <laughs> and one thing led to another, and I ended up at Intel. I hated to add I didn't marry him. That's not the one thing that led to another. He introduced me to people at Intel who hired me. Yes, one, profe- <laughs> one highly professional thing led to another. Exactly. It led right. to very unexpected job offers. Um, so when I came to Intel, I actually didn't know that there, were, that there were other anthropologists in the industry, which portrayed my terrible ignorance because there were a team of remarkable anthropologists at Xerox Park at that point in time, headed up by a woman named Lucy Suchman, who was incredible, and then also Victoria Bellotti, Jeanette Blomberg, and Julian mm-hmm. Hall were all there. Mm-hmm. So there was a, and they'd been there for 20 years. And, you know, there was a, an earlier wave of anthropologists in industry. There was an uh, anthropologist, uh, where did Lloyd go? I think he did his PhD in Michigan. 
maybe Chicago. I ought to know. I don't remember. Did his field work in Australia, uh, a guy named Lord Warner. And when he came back to the States, he ended up working, doing early organizational development at Western Electric um, and actually brought to bear a lot of ethnographic and anthropological techniques to that company. And that was in the between the wars and then after World War II. Right. Margaret Mead spent a bunch of time doing uh, anthropology outside the discipline. Um, you know, she's responsible for a bunch of things in everyday life, including the food pyramid and the recommended daily allowances of things. Those were all her ideas when she was working with um, a bunch of American government departments trying to work out how to help bring new immigrants into the country and make sure that they were being fed properly so that they were getting the right amount of, you know, vitamins and minerals and stuff. And so she created the food pyramid. <laughs> like, you know, we've had anthropologists outside of the universities for a really long time. Yeah. In my generation, it's been a, a different thing. Um, there were certainly anthropologists in um, British telecom and France telecom in the 80s and 90s and into the, into the present time. There have been anthropologists at IBM. There is a collection of them at Microsoft. Similarly, at Facebook, at eBay, at Google, um, and not just anthropologists, right? A full sort of panoply of research social scientists. So people with backgrounds in sociology, communication studies, all that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, we are pretty regularly beaten over the head about the idea that technology is the most important thing in the universe, these days, uh, you know, there is nothing bigger and more fascinating and interesting than everything that's going on in Silicon Valley. And so, you know, the approach that I had to, to speaking with you in the first place and, and the interest that I have in talking to you relative to the sort of mission of the podcast here is that I talk to kids constantly who are interested in computer science, computer science, computer science. And, um, you know, we've led a very, uh, a very purposeful and I think still succeeding, I wouldn't say successful, but succeeding push to encourage study in STEM fields. Um, but why is anthropology important? You know, because I, it's one of the things that I kind of, I, I sort of get bummed out about because I feel that the, the, the push, the national educational push to, you know, do STEM uh, sort of happens to the detriment of other disciplines that are uh, in many ways equally, I mean, you know, yeah. I don't know how you quantify it, but it's you know, equally as valuable yeah. to, to the, the, the goals that we're trying to achieve by pushing STEM in the first place. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean for me, I think it's a, it's a much larger conversation. Right? I don't think it's just about what is the value of anthropology to STEM. I think it's what are the value of the arts, humanities, and social sciences to a broader conversation about technology, innovation, and our future. Right. And I think, you know, it is right to say as a country or as a nation state or as a culture, one should ensure that you have literate citizens. And by literate, I mean they should be able to read a graph in a newspaper and ask questions about it. They should be able to read, you know, a basic science argument and know what its flaws are. You know, they should be able to add up just in case the calculator in their mobile phone fails. Yeah. <laughs> you know, basic scientific literacy is a really good thing. And all of that focus on STEM doesn't necessarily get us even to that. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, computer science, those are all incredibly important. You know, those are building blocks to how we think about making and remaking the world. That's great. And I'm, you know, a huge advocate of people doing those things. I also think you have to simultaneously do two other things. 
One is ensure that as we create STEM citizens, they have a capacity to critique all of that too. So where is the language of critique coming from, right? The bit that says you need to study the history of science and technology as well as making science and technology because from the history come important lessons about the limits of, sci limits of science, the importance of failure, <laughs> the learnings that come through being wrong, um, the limits of what science can do. You know, it's where conversations about also, I think, philosophy and morality and ethics are surfaced which turns out to be critically important questions as we move forward, right? I know you were joking at the beginning about talking about the robot apocalypse, but, you know, when we talk about things like autonomous vehicles, there's a set of questions there that are moral and ethical about what those vehicles do in the case of an accident that mean that my colleagues who are working on autonomous vehicles find themselves wrestling with questions that have bedeviled philosophers for 2,000 years about the value of human life and what the trade-offs are within that. Um, so I think, you know, yes to STEM, but yes to STEM with a capacity for critique and criticism, not as in you're wrong, but here are three hard questions to ask of that study and of knowing its history, right? I think we sometimes forget that the history of science and technology is as important as the tools for the present. So I think there's sort of that piece. And then I think, you know, you need to have a robust arts, humanities and social sciences to ensure that other conversations happen too. I mean, one of the things my colleagues often ask me as they're sending their kids off to university, most of them into engineering, I'm sad to add, um, for me at least, they say, what else should I get my kids to study? And I'm always like, take a class in poetry and be very, you know, sensible engineers at Intel usually look at me like, what? <laughs> and my answer is, listen, the future we're moving into is a future that is riven full of ambiguity. There's not going to be one right way and one right answer. And oh, by the way, being able to read a, a, a social landscape, those are skills that you will need no matter where you end up. And I think, you know, poetry is a way to learn that with rigor because frankly, there are all kinds of techniques for doing that. But, you know, as we move into a world of very different technological possibilities, I think you need a robust set of disciplines that know how to ask bigger questions. What are the consequences of a world in which all your news is served up by algorithms. Think about the last week of really interesting conversations, or last week, three days of interesting conversations we've been having about Facebook's news search algorithm. And look at the people that are asking those questions and you will find many of them are lawyers and social scientists and behavioral psychologists, not just computer scientists. And I think you know we need to have multiple disciplines engaged with the critical questions because not all of the critical questions are about how do you build a better mousetrap? How do you build a faster algorithm? How do you keep Moore's law alive and ticking? Those are good things and everyone is you know, working towards them. But there are also questions about what will it mean to be human in a world of data? What will it mean to be human in a world where there are many algorithms? What will it mean to think about reinventing yourself when the past is the present because of the way we use search engines and recommendation, recommendation algorithms. Like, you know, what will it mean to think about ethics and morality where vehicles and other objects can make decisions for themselves? Those aren't just questions of science, right? Those are questions that the arts, the humanities and the social sciences are primed to tackle, but would have to be willing to, right? I think as much as there ought to be a call on university campuses to reinvent the sciences and reinvent engineering, 
because truthfully, the problems of the next hundred years are not the problems of the last hundred. I think the same should be said of the social sciences, humanities and arts. We also ought to be asking ourselves, what are the critical questions with which we need to engage? Not how do we all become scientists, but what are the critical questions for the next hundred years? And how do we ensure that we are preparing our students and ourselves to inhabit those worlds as good citizens? And I think that means being more willing to talk across disciplines and not just anthropologists talking to sociologists, but, you know, anthropologists talking to physicists and sociologists having conversations with computer scientists. And there are certainly some universities in the US and beyond where those conversations are starting to happen. But I think if, you know, my time at Intel has taught me anything, those conversations have to involve a lot more give and take than we are usually comfortable with. Why do you think that there's been resistance um, in the past to having more multidisciplinary conversations or leveraging the the interdisciplinary value of, of, of different uh, different sort of schools of thought to, to tackle problems? Well, I mean, there's been a long history of interdisciplinarity in American universities and beyond. But I think part of the challenge is that it's just really hard. It's very abstract. Work. I mean, that's the kind of thing that's imp- it's really, well, really hard for I me to, to, to expect high school students oh. to really think about, right? It's like, I can't expect a kid oh, who's, you know, maybe 16 or 17 to, to say, you know, I'm going to study anthropology because it's going to make me a better, uh, you know, uh, considerer of mm. future technology. Oh, see, it's interesting that you think it's abstract, right? Because I think actually the challenge with interdisciplinarity is that it's the particularities that trip people up every time, right? To have genuinely interdisciplinary conversations, you actually have to understand someone else's discipline and give it credence. And we all tend to be a bit bit bigoted about our disciplines. Anthropology is the best. Our canonical literature is better than yours. So I don't want to hear about your canon because we have a better one. And I think, you know, in the times I've run genuinely interdisciplinary teams at Intel, one of the challenges was it took us a year or so to get everyone in a space where they had a shared vocabulary and a willingness to imagine that different points of view on the same problem were valuable and of learning how to kind of cross-pollinate ideas. And that took a lot of time and concrete problems to be working on. Um, And I sometimes think those things are less clear, you know, and they're harder to explain at the outset. And it takes a genuine commitment to wanting to do it. And I think, you know, at least, you know, in some of the universities to which I have been a party, the system is set up to encourage departmental and school affinities, not cross-university affinities. But that can change. It can't everything? Yes. The only reason I remain hopeful in this world, Dan, is that it doesn't have to be what it is today. I want to get to that. I want to get to the future some more. But what about the present? What, what are some sort of uh, some things that we're dealing with right now, some developments, some tools, some things that are in our midst that you think were developed uh, uh, without uh, an anthropologist being involved or that could have been of, better, of greater benefit? No. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, everything and nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think most things could be designed better than they were. And it's not always because you need an anthropologist involved. You just needed someone to ask, what were you trying to do when you did this? Mm-hmm. Like some things are really simple, right? And because someone has exquisitely understood their purpose. Uh, you know, give you an example where I'm not sure there was an anthropologist involved, but I know it worked really well. So I'm an Australian citizen. Mm-hmm. I am on the electoral roll in my country because it is compulsory to vote in Australia you know, hold the American response to that. But in my country, it is a responsibility of citizenship that you vote every time there is an election. So by law, you need to vote. That means by law, you need to be on the electoral roll and you need to have an up-to-date address. And I have changed my Australian addresses and had not updated it on the electoral roll. And we have an election pending. 
truthfully, we have a seven-week election campaign that started a week ago, and everyone in Australia is complaining it is too long. I just laugh at them. <laughs> I needed to update my address so I could get a new, you know, new form to vote. And because it is a website, I went to the website. It said, what is your previous address? I typed in my previous address. I went, great, you're on the electoral roll. Where's your new address? I typed that in. They went, great, you're now registered to vote again. Done. And I went, well, that was very simple. Mm-hmm. And it didn't ask me what was my electoral district which is truthfully, for them, what they need to do is move me from one electoral district to another electoral district. Mm-hmm. The designer of the website knew enough to know most people don't know the electoral district because they change. And it's not something you remember. You can remember your street address. You don't even need to know the number. You just need to know the street. What they need to do on the back end and what needs to happen on the front end are two completely different things. But they haven't used their form to make citizens engage with it. They have understood they're going to need to translate the information, but that what they needed to do was encourage citizens to act in a particular way. Sometimes it's really simple, right? You need to move electoral districts, but what you know is your street address. Those are two different levels of information, but one can be levered into the other if you know how to think about it. And that's on the simple side, right? Did you need an anthropologist? No. Did it help you to think exquisitely about what a human being was trying to get done when they interfaced with your application? Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, think for a minute, because I'm willing to bet this is true. A website that you visited or an app you downloaded over the last month Okay. where there was some moment where you thought, this is just too difficult. <laughs> it wanted some piece of obscure information or yet another password or it didn't recognize the network you were on or something. Sure. And it just didn't work. Sure. And all of us have those moments. And usually that's happened because it wasn't well designed, because someone wasn't thinking about what is the human being on the other side of the glass trying to get done. And you don't need to be an anthropologist to do that. You just need to be asking the right questions about what is someone trying to get done? What will they know? What is the right language to use to talk to them? And truthfully, that can scale up from really simple things like a simple form on a website to when I'm sitting at home and when I say her name, she will wake up. But I have an A-L-E-X-A, Alexa, there she goes, in the corner of my living room. And you know that is an incredibly, exquisitely sophisticated piece of technology. But it was also designed with a really strong user focus. I mean, it honestly, I didn't really know for a second if you were talking about your dog and you were going to like mention your dog's name and the dog was going to run over or something. But nope. no, you're, you're talking about the robot in your house. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the Amazon personal assistant that's home right. hub headless computer yeah. object. Yeah, that's right. That is currently sitting on the other side of my living room. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, you know, has a series of really, that is the next generation of computing, right? I mean, it's a, it's a personal computer with a voice interface rather than a keyboard and no screen. But, you know, when it was built, people thought really long and hard about the technical affordances for human beings. So, you know, they pushed the boundaries of what was technically possible. So the voice latency on it is the lowest in the industry. Um, What does that mean? It's infinitesimal. Well, so, you know, when you and I are speaking, and Uh I keep interrupting you because I'm rude, um, (laughs) you know that- Nonsense. You know we're having a conversation because there's low latency. You speak- I answer. Right. If you spoke and I went silent for about that long, you'd start wondering what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we have lots of technology objects that when we speak to them, they stay silent that long. Mm-hmm. About that long. Um, Got it. And there's just enough of that which is called latency. So, you know, what is the time period that elapses between when you do something and an action, corresponding action happens? With voice, the latency on Siri, Cortana, those things is a particular length, right? 
when Jeff Bezos was giving the kind of feedback on what he wanted Alexa to look like, there was some very clear um, notions about trying to reduce that latency to almost nothing, which is really hard technically, um, in order to make it feel uh, like a less you and a piece of technology and just you and a, an ambient voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard technical problem to solve, but when you solve it, what it delivers is a much more, um, well, human is the wrong word, a much, well, a much more intimate relationship, for want of a better word, right, is that it feels like it's an object that is responding to you in real time. Um, and, you know, they've made cl- other clever tweaks to it. So it has a set of lights on the top. And when you were talking, the lights flash light blue closest to you so that it appears to be orienting towards you. They've made clever decisions about what are the kinds of things people might say to an object. Now, clearly, you know, we know that people have said, you know, I love you to Siri for years and will you marry me and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but it added some interesting dimensionality to this one. Um, and, you know, I was really kind of interested when I got it last summer because I've been writing about this stuff for a long time and it's sort of a ubiquitous mm-hmm. computing forerunner, right? And, you know, in its first instantiation, they were very clear that it didn't do everything. And so once a week I got an, a, an email from Amazon that said, Echoes learned some new stuff. You should test it. <laughs> Here's some things it learned. And so it clearly was being set up as this is an evolving object, right? It's not perfect out of the gate. It's a very different ethos. It will evolve new things. Is that an interesting pattern that, you know, I have found living with a voice-driven object, not a text-driven object, is a very different experience. And I I know I'm not alone in that because, you know, I've seen some user data. Um, Different good? But, you know, it encourages you. It is. I think it's, I mean, it's one of the few tech objects in the last five years that I would be very sad not to have around me anymore. Interesting. Like, I don't, I don't want to lose it. <laughs> now, that's partly because voice turns out to be a really useful way of interacting with certain levels of complexity. Um, you know, for me at the moment, it's a very expensive kitchen timer and garden timer. Much <laughs> easier to set a timer when you just have to say, set a timer for 10 minutes rather than trying to work out how to set it on my oven, which involves about 27 steps and is never right. <laughs> <laughs> There's right. some interesting stuff about, you know, an ambient capacity to control lights and temperature, which I do with mine, and a few other things. But it sort of it had me thinking about what will the next generation of technology feel like, not just look like, when you start to imagine that it's designed to have a relationship with human beings. So all of our kind of stories and literature, and this would be, you know, me as a humanities person, but all the stories we have told about relationships between people and technology don't end well. Think Frankenstein, Gollum, the Terminator, (laughs) you know, the robot apocalypse. Um, You know, but imagining a possibility of relationships with technology that are different than that, that are nurturing or kind or emotional that don't necessarily result in our hearts being broken is interesting. And living, living with it is fascinating. What do you think it is about? I mean, is, what what is it about the human condition that sort of has generated over time these 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 you know consistent literary examples of being fearful of uh, of of the machines or the technology? I think it's that they're just so stories, right? I mean, I think actually they're not really about technology at all. Right. There's a lovely um, Japanese roboticist who wrote this beautiful book called The Buddha and the Robot, uh, <laughs> which he basically <laughs> argues that. Robots are just a projection surface for our own anxieties and that every time we say that the robots are going to rise up and kill us, what we're doing is merely playing out our own fears about our own capacities. Mm -hmm. 
and you know he says you know men have done the worst things to other men bearing in mind he was writing 25 years ago so you <laughs> say humans have done the worst things to other humans that we can ever do right and that the people who program robots are human so what a surprise that we fear the robots because we fear ourselves yeah right it's unfortunately not um, obsolete uh, as a concept well exactly so i think but i think also part of it is that we have lots of stories in lots of different oral and written traditions so you know myths as well about human about humans doing the business of gods, right? Gods are allowed to make life. That's what gods do, among other things. But, you know, gods can make things come to life. They can make, you know, a god, you know, made humans, at least in one, you know, tradition. Gods made many other forms of life in many other traditions. Mm -hmm. But only gods can do that. As soon as human beings step into the business of doing God's work, every oral literary tradition there is suggests that nothing good will come of it. (laughs) You know, whether it's, the kind of the <clears throat> the stories of the golem out of the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition of you know making a, a, a creature out of the river from you know the mud from the river and bringing it to life with the word of God to perform you know tasks, but ultimately it gets out of control. Whether it's Frankenstein, whether it is all of our current anxieties, those anxieties um, have currency because they have deep historical light motifs. They tap into a very deep set of anxieties we have about what happens when humans do things they shouldn't, or at least do things that we imagine they shouldn't. Not sure that I fully believe that you know humans and gods exist in different domains. At one level, we created gods. <laughs> that's probably a metaphysic conversation, but there is sort of something that says we have a particular set of anxieties about interfering in the business of life. And you know, you see those played out through the contemporary period. Think about the kind of challenging conversations in the United States around stem cell research. Mm-hmm. Think about the conversations 30 and 40 years ago about the first in vitro fertilization or IVF programs for babies were incredibly contested in terms of that. You know, current conversations about birth control are also part and parcel of ideas about what happens when you intervene with quote unquote the natural order. It's just that, you know, the stories about robots are an easy place to play that out. And it's not just about, you know, Asimov and the three laws of the robot or any of those things. I mean, those only make sense in a very particular sort of cultural context. But it is about, you know, who gets to make things come to life and what are the consequences. They're good questions. So I'm lucky in lots of ways, right? When I was a little girl, my mother used to tell me that you were morally obliged in this world to make it better, that, you know, your obligation as a human being was to make the world a better place, not just for yourself, but for others. And you should put all of your effort into doing that, which means for me, I do actually believe (laughs) at a pretty fundamental level that the world can be better through our efforts, right? That what it looks like today isn't our destiny, right? That there are ways of being different as we move forward. So against that backdrop, what are the things that I'm excited about? Listen, I think we're in the middle of a second pivot in the kind of world of compute. I've been sort of fortunate enough to be at the epicenter of that for the last, well, 25 years, um, you know, since I've been on the West Coast. And, you know, I was in Silicon Valley through much of the kind of the last 25 years when we went digital, for better or worse, right? And there had been digital before that, but, you know, that was the period of the emergence of the internet, the web, 
and a range of digital devices, you know, whether it was desktops, laptops, mm. smartphones, all that stuff. And, you know, what it meant to be human in that period of time has been the thing I have focused on. You know, what did it mean to be human in a world of smartphones? What did it mean to think about religion against the backdrop of the internet? What did it mean to imagine that God could send text messages? Good court case in Finland about that one. I mean, I sort of thought through those things for a long time, and they have been really interesting and important questions. Uh-huh. But I'm actually looking forward and saying, we are standing at the beginning of the next era of all of this. And it's an era that's about data. It's about, you know, things and devices connected to a cloud, many clouds, generating an incredible proliferation of data. And as a result, new possibilities and prospects and challenges and opportunities and perils. And, you know, the devices become less central in this than the data and what gets done with it. And for me, thinking about what it will mean to be human in a world of data as well as devices is this incredible moment of thinking one more time with feeling about what makes us us, what makes us human, mm-hmm. what will we need to think about as consumers, as citizens, as parents and children and members of families and communities. You know, how are we going to think about everything from privacy and trust and security to ideas about knowledge and information to questions about memory? You know, all of those, I think, you know, come into sharp relief, right? I mean, I think, you know, we're coming out of a year of talking about, or two years really, of a really renewed conversation about privacy and security. I don't think that gets anywhere. I think, you know, we are on the precipice of a whole generation of new technologies, so augmented and virtual reality in particular, that let us think very differently about telling a story. What does narrative look like when it doesn't have to be linear anymore? And both augmented and virtual reality offer, I think, seriously, you know, the first virtual reality demo was 50 years ago with Sutherland. But we now have the prospect of actually having those things come true. Hmm. And what will a story look like when it's in the round, not on the rail? I mean, that will be remarkable, right? We're going to have a whole generation of people who can think about telling stories differently. I mean, this will not be like the transition from black and white to color, where, you know, or the silence to the speakies. But it will have a similar effect in terms of reimagining narrative. So, you know, different ideas of sort of how we tell stories, different ideas about how we engage with other human beings. I think it is easy to get um, sucked in by the notion that all this technology is linear and unidirectional. But, you know, all of this is also happening against the backdrop of a resurgence of the physical. So whether it's, you know, the fact that we still buy books, like the ones with paper in them, (laughs) you know, vinyl's been more popular in the last two years than it was in the last 20. You know, we've gone back to thinking about food and slow technology and physicality. And, you know, I suspect there is a relationship to all of those things and piercings that shouldn't be undercounted, i.e. the body is front and center again, right? So as we become even more digital, we also become even more embodied. And I think that means, you know, the conversations we are having right now are unsurprising, right? In a time when we exist on the internet in many ways, more than we exist in a physical world, We are also arguing about our physical bodies, about what bathrooms we use, about who we can marry, about how we should dress. 
there's something really interesting about the fact that all of those conversations happen at the same time. Huh. So I think, you know, the next 10 years, God, they're going to be fascinating. I mean, not only do you have this increasing class of objects that will be connected to the internet, so not the internet of things and the, you know, the way we've talked about it for the last 10 years, because I think that's a bit boring, but many more things, things and stuff, things and stuff and devices, right. where, you know, cars suddenly become cloud-driven connected objects. Sure, they're cars, but they're also, I mean, they're basically smartphones with wheels. <laughs> you know, we already have multiple different kinds of living things connected to the internet, not human beings, so we are also, but, you know, all manner of animals, mm -hmm. whether it's for wildlife tracking or better farming techniques. Right, crops. We can start to think about, yeah, exactly, you can start to think about smart cities. I mean, think about, so... You grew up in Portland. I've lived here a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, it was the use of portable connected air sensors that opened up the whole conversation about air quality in Portland over the last six months. <laughs> Think about the kind of ways we can change conversations about the places we inhabit when you have smart sensing technology that tells you about environmental particulates and congestion. Where you can start to link the amount of traffic on a road or a factory's output to the quality of air and to our medical conditions. I mean, there's this incredible kind of possibilities and prospects when you imagine all this stuff that gets connected up and all this data that gets produced. Hmm. And for me, that combination of things, of the things that will be connected, the data that will be produced, and the consequences of all of that, God, I can't imagine a more exciting time really to be a researcher. Um, me either now, hearing all of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so my you know, CEO calls all of that the virtuous cycle. I mean, he says... You know, we're moving out of a world where we just thought about things. So we're moving into a world where all of those things get connected and yeah. they all produce data and all that data will move to the cloud and there will be lots of clouds and those clouds will be really complicated. And, you know, there will be this extraordinary proliferation that in some ways just speeds up. And, I, you know, I think he's right about that. And to call it for what it is, which is this next evolution in compute, mm -hmm. where it isn't about, you know, just the devices or these you know big data sets it's about the interconnections and the kind of the dynamicness of all of that and of all the things it opens up i mean you're already seeing it in some places right think about you know precision medicine well we now have enough supercomputer at a low enough scale that you can start to decode individual cancers like at a human level it's like you as a human being, your individual cancer can get decoded and treated in a different kind of way. I have a colleague of mine, a man named Eric Dishman, who has just left Intel to join the um, President's Initiative on Precision Medicine. And that's precisely what he's driving, right? It's how do we use the brute force of compute that was once only available to very few to drive down the cost of actually addressing individual cancers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is remarkable. You can do the same thing on a completely different emotional scale with agriculture and mineral extraction, where you can start to say, what does it mean to think about precision agriculture? We know that, you know, one side of a hill is different from the other side, that the lower end is different than the higher end. How do you actually start to treat your farm with a level of precision that lets you not just improve your yields, but also treat the soil better, engage in better management of water and all of those things, right? So I don't think it's a slam dunk. <laughs> I've lived around Silicon Valley long enough to know that the promise always exceeds the reality. Mm -hmm. But I also know that 
this opens up possibilities in ways that I haven't seen for a long time and that it opens up possibilities for some very different people. So I know, you know, you sit in a, you know, that kind of exquisitely complicated interface between universities and the world and high schools too. But when I think about what are the skills you will need to be successful in this world, yeah. this isn't just about STEM, right? Data scientists, the people who are going to help unlock the possibilities of all of that materiality, yep. some of them are going to be computer science and mathematicians, but a bunch of them are going to be economists, behavioral psychologists, yeah. people who dabble in statistics. Um, and all of them are going to need to think about questions around privacy and trust and risk and ethics. So, I mean, I think it's sort of this moment where the sets of skills one is going to need look a little bit different than they have, but the prospects are intense. And it's not about, you know, one's job being replaced by a robot. Right. I think that's a, not as simple as that. Well, what gets in, you know, I'm afraid to ask this question because I'm, you know, I'm a little, I'm a, I may, I don't know, appease the Anne Rand devotees out there, but it's like, what's the, uh, what gets in the way of that future? Hmm, all the usual stuff. <laughs> no, no, what, no what, gets, what gets in the way of all of that? I mean, I think a couple of things do, right? One is that most stories about the future imagine there is no friction in the world. <laughs> so, you know, stories about autonomous cars. <sighs> don't usually involve a story about what is the insurance company going to do and yeah, who's going to license it and the, how the, the narrative regulate of the, it. And the bureaucracy is not is not compelling a literature necessarily. No. Well, it isn't. There's nothing sexy about bureaucracy unless you're a bureaucrat, <laughs> in which case maybe there is. So, I mean, I think, you know, part of it is that all of those stories we tell about the future don't, don't include enough friction. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, not just friction in the film of bureaucracy, but and some bureaucracy is good. I mean, I happen to believe that the EPA is a good thing, not a bad thing. I think you need regulation because otherwise the market does not take care of everything. You know, the market doesn't take care of certain kind of interests that, you know, historically don't always get well served, like indigenous people and women. And I would say the LBGTI community mm -hmm. and the environment, mm -hmm. just to name a few. Right. <laughs> Probably African-Americans in the U.S. too and old people. I mean, really, the market doesn't take care of all kinds of things. Yes. So, you know, yes, I think, you know, part of what will stop that, that future from coming, one of it is we always undercall the complicatedness of those kind of futures. I think that's problem number one. Problem number two is no future arrives into a blank state. I mean, it's not tabula rosa, right? You are arriving in a world that is already full of stuff. Things, stuff, patterns, habits, stuff people like so what will usually happen is these futures get layered on top of our presence, right? I mean, frankly, at one level, you know, I tend to think of cars are a nice proxy for this. When you get into a car, even a Tesla, there are a constellation of different interface possibilities because they all do different things. You know, if you're still driving a car with gears, a gear shift is the best way of moving around a gear box. Knobs, not so good. Knobs are better for lights. Mm -hmm. Windscreen wipers, we still like the thing that goes up and down. You need a button for the window. So you uh -huh. need a handle. You sit in a car and you suddenly realize there are multiple different interfaces that you engage with every time you drive a car. Well, life is like that too, right? Your house is full of analog and digital stuff. Even the digital stuff isn't necessarily the same as the other digital stuff. So whatever this world is of data that we move into, it will be layered on top and through the world we already live in. So one of the problems will just be there's legacy everywhere. I mean, both legacy stuff and legacy behavior 
it's very hard to imagine that any system will upgrade simultaneously. I mean, think about Y2K and then multiply it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, you've got kind of friction, you have legacy, you have the fact that nothing ever happens as quickly as we predict, usually off by anywhere between five to 100 years, depending on what we're talking about. Right. I mean, God knows, Mary Wollstonecraft wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Women in 1792. That seems some time ago now. Speaking of which, um, a question that I had for you, is it getting easier for women in engineering? Um, Yes and no. I think yes, because there are more women than there have ever been. And it's easier because you can look up and see women in positions of power. No, because you can look up and see women in positions of power, but usually it's one or two. (laughs) I think the bright spot there is that, you know, this is not about asking women to be better. This is about asking and empowering men to change the world in which they work too. And I see more of my male colleagues interested in working in a different world. Mm -hmm. And I'm lucky I work in a company with a CEO who is very committed to the world being different. And on that note, Mr. Sweeney, I feel we're almost close to having to wrap this up. We absolutely are. I could talk to you all day. I could talk to you as well. And um, I'm thrilled to have had you for um, this period of time that I did. Finally, where can people kind of uh, keep up on the sorts of things that you're thinking about and talking about? Is Twitter a good place to do that? Oh, easy peasy. Yeah, Twitter is the best place to find me. My handle there is feral data. Yes. Like wild, undomesticated data. Yeah, what's the story (laughs) behind that? What a great name. But the short answer is, I joined Twitter a very long time ago, and I was obsessed with all things feral at the time. Including data. Mm Mm-hmm. Thank you so, so much. This has been uh, fantastic. I hope you have uh, an awesome weekend. You're very welcome. You know, you know, I'm very fond of your dad. So, you know, anything for him is for you too. Oh, man. Well, that makes at least two of us. <laughs> oh, I love her laugh so much. So good. Um, I pretty much have not much to add to this other than to say to all those undecided students out there thinking about their own future in college, Genevieve had a chance meeting at a bar that led her to become one of the most influential thinkers in Silicon Valley. She couldn't have planned for that. She has continued to learn and dig deep into the thing she loves the most, which is anthropology. And she has, as another one of my personal heroes, Bill Murray, has also advised when it comes to life in general, she has made herself available. She has maintained a definitively open mind, and she said yes safely to something strange and different when she linked up with Intel. I get that uh, it's definitely a little ironic that here we are talking with and about somebody whose job it is to define the future, which is what you're all trying to do as you work your way through college and the admissions process. Yet the point here is, to me at least, you kind of just need to let the future do its thing. That is to say, plan for it only insofar as you can plan to be the best you in it once it shows up. A lot of colleges trying to understand what your role is in the future and admittedly how much it's going to pay you. And nobody's going to tell you that those anxieties aren't valid. As, um, in fact, an old therapist once told me it was Freud who said that anxiety itself is rooted in worry about the future in particular. So totally real, but try your best to not let them get in the way of enjoying your life right now and getting good at the stuff that you like right now. The future will come, inevitably. Okay. That's it. Thanks for listening. Shoot me some feedback. 503-86-CRUSH, crushpod at gmail.com. Sign up for email updates at crushpodcast.com. Rate this show on iTunes and follow me on Twitter at crushpod. All right. Next week, I break into double digits. Uh, Hooray with episode 10. 
It's a big one. I haven't figured out if I'm going to break it into a part one or part two or what, because it's two hours talking with somebody who's played a key role in my whole life, uh, my close friend and boss, John Burdick. But he's also dealt with the issues of money around college and higher education for going on 35 years and has tons of uh, extremely honest answers to questions that I had and that I know a lot of you have too. So tune in then. You know, we talk about uh, the cost of college, uh, going up, debt, what an endowment is, scholarships, uh, financial aid, will it cost a million dollars a year at some point to go to college, stuff like that. So, all right. Thank you very much, folks. Take it easy. And uh, don't worry. Terminator, so far at least, is just a movie. So no pressure, students of the world, but it is your job to make sure that it stays that way. All right. So uh, you got this. Talk to you next time.